Hey everybody, welcome to episode two of the Mountain Bike Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Uh, my name is Jonathan Lee. And, and my name is Stephen Lewis. <laughs> That's him. I was going to intro you, but that works too. I like introing myself sometimes. Yeah, you should. Yeah, yeah. We're co-hosts. This isn't like host and guest. Exactly. Yeah. So welcome to the Mountain Bike Podcast. Uh, this is where we talk about mountain bikes. All thing mountain bikes are all things mountain bikes. Everything from enduro to downhill to cross country to... Even sometimes we'll mention cyclocross stuff. Mostly as a joke. But yeah, yes. mostly as a joke, yeah, because it's mini golf, putt-putt, putt-putt for bikes, right? Exactly. So, yeah, anyways, we talk about a bunch of different stuff, and you can find this podcast and share it uh, from iTunes, from SoundCloud, from Stitcher, uh, wherever else you're listening to it, you should be able to find it. And if you can't find it somewhere, let us know. Please leave us reviews on that spot if you like it. If you don't, send us a message first, and then let us know what we can do to better it, and then leave a review after we've bettered it. Exactly. Is better to word? Maybe. Let's roll with it. Okay. Uh, yeah. So we talk about a bunch of different things, but one of the things that we talk about is the news of what's going on. And even though it's, there's not a whole lot going on in the mountain bike world right now because it's winter time, we're just kicking off or we're into 2017 now, but there's not a whole lot going on. There is some stuff. And one of them happens to apply to one of the best dudes, I think, in the downhill world, just like a good human. Greg Menar. Absolutely. Just a good guy. Um, number one, Greg Menar was on a video wrestling a croc, which is actually pretty rad. That's pretty awesome. I found it strange though, because they used that video on pink bike to kind of like also announce that he was with rush sports. So he's actually taking like a management role at this company, which is rush sports, a director role, correct? Director role. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. This is pretty big, right? Absolutely. And what is rush sports for people that don't know? Uh, they're South African uh, importer and distributor for a lot of major brands. Yeah. Um, Maxis is one of them. Um, I actually don't know a lot of their brands, but I know that they are the Maxis distributor for South Africa. So he's going to be, he'll still be an incredible downhill racer. Absolutely. Could win it any weekend. Absolutely. And I call him the hovercraft because he's just so incredibly smooth through stuff. Well, it also doesn't help that he has a V10 under him. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. And, and the legs that are extremely long too. He's a tall dude. Yeah. So, but anyways, he'll be an incredible downhill rider. He's also being, you know, has a director role at a big business, which is crazy. And then he's also helping Santa Cruz. I know every rider does this to a certain amount, but seems like he's doing more on the development product dev side of things for Santa Cruz than most downhill riders. You know, that, and that's something usually when you start, I don't want to say aging out of racing, but when you get to a certain point, that's actually what your role turns into is more not winning World Cups, but more developing product for the next generation of World Cup racers. Yeah, and I think that's fair to say, because he said, I have three years left, he said roughly, that he anticipates. Yeah. He said, I think I have around three years of racing left. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, it's a fair statement. He's getting toward the end, and you get a huge amount of experience in a variety of conditions at such an elite level. Yeah. That's a huge asset to a company. Absolutely. So, um, so it could put all the bros on Santa Cruz bikes under, you know, on an even better bike. Exactly. So, um, yeah, syndicate is definitely going to benefit yeah. with having Monarch developing product and bros around the world can rejoice. Exactly. All the Santa Cruz bros, all of them. They love their bikes with their flat build hats, flat build hats. Yep. That's the way it goes. Um, so yeah, pretty cool to see Greg Menard, like I guess diversifying like that. Exactly. Rad. He's the coolest dude, by the way. Um, so we were flying out of Interbike this year and we were in a long lost terminal somewhere at McCarran Airport there in Vegas. And he was down there and he sat down like right next to us. And I was like, hey man, I'm a big fan of yours. Love what you do. I tried to not be like a big fan girl, you know, at that moment. But 
And I was, and I, and we had the most comfortable, normal conversation for like a half hour. You didn't have, ask him to sign your baby, did you? Uh, no, I did not. I had no baby at that time. Otherwise, I would have. Okay, good. No, <laughs> no but um, no, he was just super easygoing and just a normal guy, but not just a normal guy, really kind and genuinely interested in just the fact that I rode bikes, he rode bikes, and we could talk about that. Absolutely. He is just a cool guy. Yeah. So, um, and I'm sure that, you know, a lot of athletes are like that, but Greg, for now, I'll, we'll just talk about him. He's awesome. Yeah. So, he's a good dude. Yeah. Really good dude. Um, and uh, on the other side of the news stuff, we talked last episode, the first one, we talked a little bit about MTBR's picks for their product, rider, et cetera, of the year awards. And Vitals jumped in on that game too, and they have a bunch. So we're going to go into Vitals and then get down to MTBRs because they have a bunch of stuff that's come out. So um, Vital gave Bike of the Year to the Pivot Switchblade. How do we feel about that? Well, I think everybody's finally figuring out how to build a proper 29-inch trail bike. Yeah. You know, they're figuring out how to make them, you know, nimble, maneuverable, and you can't un, you know you can't deny the the rollover characteristics are better on a 29er so yeah. i i just think pivot finally nailed their 29 inch trail bike and they cracked the case they did definitely crack the case yeah and in pivots so i've only ridden uh i've ridden a what was the mach 4 i believe was mach the bike 429 Four, 429 yeah. yep i've ridden that bike it's really good it was a great bike yeah um it did feel a little dead kind of to me okay so i guess just not too lively but at the same time it was super capable and i mean i, I give it like if i was on a zero to ten for trail riding i would give that bike like an eight out of ten nine out of ten like it was a really good bike yeah um it did look like a nascar though with their crazy graphics they're definitely known for their loud graphics these yeah. days yeah yeah really loud comparatively speaking to most brands and of course i guess Loud is kind of a hard word because you have brands like Specialized making like neon green bikes and and every brand like Giant for example their and even Yeti now bright. Yeti now too yeah, yeah. Um, but it their design I guess just the way that they use like the lines that their bike has the lines are super pronounced I'm personally not a fan of the massive swoopy curviness of of pivot bikes not a huge fan either yeah I don't, just don't like the aesthetics of it doesn't mean that it's not doesn't make a good riding bike I just don't like the aesthetics of it um. And they, the lines they kind of use and their designs to accentuate those curves always kind of turn me off. Looks like an ass car. And I also don't like the clevis design of the the base of the rear shock. You know, I'm just a, a little weird with that with, you know, the issues Ibis has had with that design as well. Yeah. What it, issues? Like, uh, creaking issues specifically. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, creaky bikes, not, not okay. Not good. No. Especially, honestly, like if it's my bike, yeah, I'd be frustrated. But it frustrates me even more when I'm riding with somebody else. And they don't take care to to make their bike not creak. Oh, yeah. Especially if you're doing the sacrilegious thing of riding road for a day because you have nothing else to focus on other than just pedaling and the noises around you pretty much. And you get a guy that's creaking, it's the worst. Yeah. So I mean, but, I guess if the pivot makes sense, I mean, it's a good riding bike. I no, absolutely. I don't know if I would, I mean, I mean, obviously you and I, because of, you know, our Yeti fanboy, yeah. you know, status, we're obviously a little bit against the, the DW link in general. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm not a fan of how the DW link rides. Yeah. No. Like you said, it has that dead middle. It does feel, you feel like you blow through the stroke there. Yeah. Yeah. There's exactly. no support in pedaling. Yeah. You rely on the valving of the shock essentially. Yeah. Like which, a VPP bike. If you can, which if you get the right shock with it, it's perfect, right? You could dial it in. It's great, but it's hard to find that 
like a, a OEM shock that comes set up so that you can actually, and I'm not talking just air pressure, I'm talking the tuning spec and everything else with a shock to get it set up so that it actually works with that. That's pretty tough. Absolutely. So, but yeah, it's a good bike. Interesting. Nonetheless, um, they certainly liked it and it's, they, it's kind of like it's the all arounder. Like there was nothing wrong with it. Uh, so they, they liked it the best, I guess. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess if you're going to look at a quiver bike as what it's not terrible at, it's easier to make a decision. Yeah. Yeah. Their product of the year, they gave to the Rock Shock Super Deluxe Rear Shock, which kind of ties into what we were just talking about and finding the shock with the perfect tune. Um, I haven't ridden one yet. I hope that I will have one on next year's bike build uh, or this year's bike build, I should say, um, which would be pretty rad. No, absolutely. Um, but they've got some cool stuff to it. First of all, th- they basically describe it in the in the Pink Bike article as like, Rock Shock said, "Hey, like we've done a great job with the uh, with a pike, and we want to do the same thing with the shock." And so they basically talk about the fact that since um, what is the trunnions? Is that what they're called? The the how they've moved the mounts further away. Yeah, um, yeah. So basically, that's given them more room in the shock. More room has allowed them to add more volume in the right places, but also give more space to things in other places. And then basically, in the end, you get a shock that has more support through the mid range and then it gives you all the sensitivity that you need still without, you know, giving that harsh feel and they say it's the best. And I mean, I guess a shock they, and it's interesting because they say it's crazy that they give suspension a product of the year. It's totally not like that shocks in the past two years. Suspension has made such a huge jump across the board. Oh, every brand except for cane Creek of all brands but then yeah. again i'm not i don't want to get started on that <laughs> yeah i had a lot of hope there and uh, my brother actually has the double barrel when it first came out he's like and you know super engineer nerd big on that type of stuff yep. uh, we also he comes from the motor world just like i do so we understand suspension tuning and and how to go about it and it's still really honestly he, he got it dialed in for what he rode which is a can field the one but it it was a total durability. Issues, it was, yeah. So. Um, but yeah, it makes sense that that's the product of the year. And I think that honestly, I mean, it's going to get tougher since these have these new trunnion mounts or whatever they're called that I keep, I, that word seems made up. So I always hesitate to say it, but I think that is what it says. Um, yeah, trunnion, that's it. So they, those are going to make it harder to make new shocks compatible with older bikes because you have to design that link or the frame, everything else around the new length of that shock, like the effective length of the shock. Yeah. Your eye to eye length. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So it's going to make it harder, which it's kind of a bummer because the reason that it makes sense to say like a suspension products, number one is because it could improve your bike the most. But if you don't have a bike that's designed for a new shock like this, it's not going to work. Yeah. Backwards compatibility is kind of key and that's, I hate to say it, but that's something that SRAM has never been yeah. apt about. And that's part of that planned obsolescence of the bike industry in general. Yeah. yeah. Which sucks. Sorry, guys. But, you know, that's yeah. kind of how it is. That's just how it is. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, killer shocks I've heard. Um, I'm looking forward to trying one myself. You know, and, and from a maintenance standpoint, if I can interject, the yeah, one yeah. thing that I'm curious to find out on the Super Deluxe is... I've always had a problem with rock shocks, shocks in general, because you have to know which shock and which air volume spacer and which, you know, everything about the shock <laughs> yes. you have to know and which bike it came on in order to get a rebuild kit for it. Yep. So whereas a Fox, every single float shock, whether it's a float X or a standard float inline, 
same rebuild kit across the board, Easy. whether you have the Evol canister or a DPS yep. or whatever, they're all the same. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing SRAM in general, uh, take more control over, um, I guess you'd say, uh, uh parts keeping yeah. things similar across the board. Hopefully that's the case. Yeah, right. Hopefully. I mean, I've got the RS one fork on my ASR. Every single thing for that is proprietary. It's all unique, right? You need proprietary tools. Yeah, the tool's 80 bucks, man. Yeah. Just the tool itself. Yep. And it's a giant cylinder with uh, with just a stamped or like pressed shape that you can fit a wrench around. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, 80 bucks. Um, anyways, uh, so the Rider of the Year they gave to Brandon Seminuk. We talked about Rider of the Year Last week on the MTBR side, yeah, and I—I I mean, I we even talked about Semenuk. I think he got an honorable mention, and we were like, "Yeah, genuine, yes." Like he, the guy was amazing this year. But then also seeing Vital make him the Rider of the Year for 2016 makes sense. Perfect. That's Good. their audience. Yep, totally makes sense. Yep, yeah, um, that dude's incredible. So uh, that covers the the Vital side of things on MTBR. They've had a bunch of new stuff. Uh, so on their enduro bikes, they give it to the Trek slash. It looks like a Trek session. Yeah. Let's just start with that. It's a single crown <laughs> Trek session. And you know, anybody who knows me knows that I have this weird secret love affair with Trek bikes, even though they're, you do, huh? Oh God, I, you know, when I went to Whistler and had a couple technical difficulties with my Cannondale, um, enduro bike, technical difficulties with the Cannondale. Yeah. Imagine that <laughs> crazy. I didn't yeah. crack the frame that if that's what you're thinking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Steven, by the way, has dropped, what was it on us? It wasn't, it wasn't a scalpel. What was it? Um, it was the, uh, the Jekyll carbon team. Jekyll carbon team. That was the best one you can get, right? Yeah. 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 Legit gorgeous bike. And you dropped what, like a five foot drop, four foot drop on the thing. No, it was like just shy of 20 foot to flat. Okay. <laughs> On the yeah. Canadian Open downhill course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. At Crankworks. And snap the thing. After I raced the Garbanzo DH on it. Yeah, and you're not a small guy. No. So, yeah, that'll happen. But I've got this secret love affair with Trek, and I rode a Session Park and a Session 99 demo bike for two days straight. Did you like it? They're, honestly, I'm sorry. The Evo Links are awesome. I love those, the, the active breakpoint, everything about those bikes. I hate how big box store brand they seem to be. I actually really genuinely like Trek's bikes and I like the new 29 inch slash. I think Trek has, and I think that they're very aware of this problem because their identity was Lance well, and of course. that, that they didn't care about their identity really on the mountain bike side of things because Lance transcended everything. Right. Well, of course. Then once Lance, of course, got, you know, the whole thing when it, once he was implicated, it's fair to say, and, and everything came crashing down the company came crashing down with him in a lot of ways in terms of their brand. Yeah. Like it, it just fell apart because Lance wasn't there and it was all based on him. Yeah. Since then, I feel like they've struggled to find their way because look like, dude, they have Semenuk, they have, um, Brett reader. They've had the Atherton's for a while. Yep. They had Gwen before that for a while. They've had like incredible riders doing incredible things on their bikes on the XC side of things. They've been strong too. But at the same time, you don't see people ever going like, man, that like, for example, we, we always talk about our Yeti fanboyism. People look at Yetis and they go, oh, I just wish I had that bike or an evil, for example. They love those bikes. But Trek, maybe it's just because it's a big, but I see more people more passionate about Specialized than I do Trek. It's just like, it seems like Trek, there is no, pa not passion behind their products. 
but there's no passionate people lusting after them. And you could put that on track and say that it's, you know, more of who they choose to, you know, sponsor to ride their bikes or who, yeah. um, how they market things. Yeah. Um, I mean, look at Tracy Mosley. Absolutely. Dude, just, yeah. I mean, such good riders on their bikes. Yeah. It's incredible. But I, I, I don't know. I mean, I've heard they ride incredibly well. That one is really specced out. If you get the high end one, it's, it's a sweet bike. Yeah. Um, it's really built up well. So they gave Trek slash then the runner up they gave to the evil insurgent, which, which we talked in talked podcast about. one. I'd really yeah. love to ride one of those. Yep. A friend of mine has, has had that bike. Um, or I should say has had the 27, five, uh, version of it or no, it is. That is the one. Yeah. I always get it confused with their names, but he wasn't a fan, but every single other person I've talked to loves that bike. Yeah. So makes sense. And then their honorable mention part one, they gave to the specialized enduro. I know my friend Brian Gordon was, I assume he's usually on the more XC side of things. Like he was really involved with the Epic hardtail that they just, they just came out with. It's super light. Yeah. I think he was probably involved with this too. Okay. Um, I know they made it better. But I, so Brian didn't tell me this, but I have heard murmurings from plenty of people there at Specialized that they had like big plans for the Enduro. And I feel like this was just, uh, iteration like i think it's just a rolling change while the big plans are still being worked out yeah i think okay. so yeah. and but they a lot of people like the new bike yeah and you know i've got a friend uh, who bought one of these and sold it after a month because he was just unimpressed with it yeah so it's either love or hate with it and he's yeah. not even you know he's not a specialized fanboy or a specialized hater he just didn't like the bike right there you, and that's that's rare to find that you yeah. get person somebody that's just you know neutral there but yeah. That's, that's a, yeah, accurate way. They did put the, the, the weed holder in this bike. So that little pocket in the frame, yeah which let's be real. We know exactly why that is being. Yeah. You're not putting a tube in there. Yeah. Nobody's really putting tools or a tube in there. Yeah. 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 Especially in California. For transportation yeah. and distribution purposes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We know what people are using it for. And then they gave another honorable mention to the Yeti SB6C, which you have owned one before. Yes. Yeah, awesome bike. Uh, yeah. I did. Uh, can't complain. Can't, I, I can't say anything but good about it. They used a picture of Cody Kelly too. They did, which is never a bad thing. It's always awesome. Yeah. He may have the best style in EWS. He might. Yeah. I mean, you can't even see his face here and you're like, yeah, that's Cody Kelly. Yeah. It's pretty rad. Yeah. When, before he signed with Yeti this year, he did a video with Marin because that's who he rode with before. And, uh, it was up in like Utah up above Ogden. There's like a, a big area of like dirt jumps and these rad trails and everything else. I can't remember the name of the video, but he was wearing camo TLD and like some flow orange or something. And then yeah. he has this crazy long blonde hair. Yeah. Video's rad. I He's, haven't seen it. He like spends more time on one wheel than, than two throughout the whole video and just Euro tables everywhere. It's pretty rad. So He's awesome, that guy. Uh, anyways, moving on to their best cross country bike. They gave it to the Scott Spark. Uh, I, I have ridden the previous gen Scott spark and I was not a fan of it. I felt like it was, uh, it was super active in a bad way, like almost like overly active when you were riding the bike. Like it was really, uh, it constantly felt like it was, wasn't a soft pedaling platform, but you had a ton of feedback. Like it was like popping up underneath you when you hit bumps. And, and I remember turning rebound damping up and then the shock just felt, the bike just felt dead. It felt like I couldn't find like a, a sweet spot on it. The new one's a totally different design though. Yeah. Totally different rocker link. 
mm-hmm. vertical shock. The last generation was horizontal, wasn't it? it was yeah. more yeah. more or less a a very modified four bar rear end almost. Yep. Yeah. yeah, and now you've got more or less. It's still it's got that 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 link on there. Then it's got the the vertical shock, the one that's parallel to the seat tube. But they said that it actually performs in many ways similarly to the previous bike, but they like it, they said it performs like a single pivot XC bike. Okay. But they said that it fixed, for example, the the overactive like rebound characteristics that were passed through it with the shocks that were shipped with the bike and a bunch of things. So the problems that I talked about, they said the new one fixes. So what's your so, take on it being a 120 mil XC race bike? I think that that's how XC race bikes should be. Uh, I think it's old fashioned to think that it's 100 mil or less. Okay. Uh, or hundred millimeters or less. I should be specific there, but I, I think that's old fashioned other uh, than the RC version that is a hundred mil yes. on that bike. And I honestly think that that bike, if you went to 120, if you can keep your front end low enough with the stem and honestly low front ends, like for climbing, I get it to a certain extent, but with how much more aggressive XC race or XC courses are getting, it's going to be, you know, I, I honestly think that you're doing just fine with running a 120 up front. Yeah. And I mean, you look at the stack height generally on that bike, just from the picture, and it looks like they've done a good job of, you know, tucking that down to back enough to clear the fork. And yep. it looks like the actual head tube itself is nice and short. Super so, short. Yeah. Like the one on my ASR. Yeah. See, you know, my ASR is super short. My stack height on that ASR is, um, not, I think it's nine millimeters lower than it was with my uh, specialized the the stump jumper hardtail that I had the previous year with twenty mils more travel twenty mil more travel and it's still lower and it's not just because and that head tube is just super short on yeah, that bike absolutely know? so yeah I, and it looks like a really good bike I think that's a good looking bike yeah. the Scott Spark so and it comes in crazy variations they even have like a fat bike version of it or like a a plus bike I should say and Scott seems to be doing that with generally all of their bikes yeah. So they have like a bunch of different options with it. Yeah. Uh, after that, they also mentioned um, the scalpel, which, I mean, if you look at results here stateside, you can't argue with that. I mean, you have Rafael Gagne did incredibly well this year. Uh, Keegan Swenson, uh, who's an absolute ripper and a good human too. Um, I mean, you, you, Alex Grant, you have a bunch of guys that have done really well on that bike. It's feather light. Yeah. They redesigned it this year with more, um, it's like similar geometry to the ASR in a lot of ways in the yeah. sense that it's just a little more aggressive. Yeah. Right. Um, they call, they have that big marketing behind it, the XXC, which makes sense. The only thing, I mean, if you, if you go to get a Cannondale, you're all in on the Cannondale. Yeah. You know, with all the system wagon. integration and yeah. the AI offset wheel in the rear and yeah, which I'm same boat with my cyclocross bike. Ha jokes. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. but yeah, there's a lot of, uh, specifics when it comes to lefty with AI, with all of your system integration stuff. Yes. You're definitely going all in with Canon now. Yeah. The one thing I can say is I've spoken to people that rode the previous gen scalpel and they were meh on it. It was light. It was meh. This new one I've spoken to them. They love it. Yeah. And it's and that's much the, the, improved. The big issue with that was I believe, didn't they have a 74 degree head tube angle? That was yes. the biggest complaint. Most people yep. had is that it was terrifying to go downhill on that thing. And so they seem to have really fixed that and gone more, like you said, like the ASR dropping it, you know, a yeah. little bit slacker, a little bit more playful, a little yep. bit more fun. And I mean, I've seen people build these things with 
uh, with like a full XX1 drivetrain with the lightest NV everything that you can put on them. And I think I've seen one in a medium weigh 20.1 pounds. It's light, man. I mean, it's, you know, most people's cross bikes weigh that. Yeah. So that's, you know, it's one thing Cannondale's been able to do is figure out how to do really strong carbon frames and keep them super light. And if you were to address Cannondale from this perspective, that like... Cannondale, I, I almost feel like they look at the any type of a mountain bike problem to solve, and they just think, okay, here's how it would be solved. Now let's do it totally differently. But they manage to make it work. Of they course. take a totally different route on everything, it seems, but they manage to do it, and it not works usually just as well as everything else. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, they're pretty cool there. Yeah. And they said the honorable mention, which this was a surprise to me, but the Kona Hehe. Um, that's kind of a surprise to me. Very much. You don't hear a lot about Kona ever being in the top of anything anymore. Especially XC. Especially XC. Full yeah. suspension XC. Yeah. I mean they, they do have some strong riders on it, Barry Wicks, and like, you know, they've got some they've got some good riders that definitely take that thing up a notch. But I yeah, I mean, I don't know. I haven't ridden it. I can't, I guess, really provide any feedback. Leave it at that. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's go on to, they, they have innovation of the year and they said the SRAM Eagle one by 12. Uh, I agree, I guess. I would agree as well. I almost feel like that's iteration of the year. Dare I say not innovation. Yeah. I mean, I know that it's totally new to have 12 speed, but at the same time, it's the same parts of a drivetrain. It's just another gear. And it's a and it's a wider range. I mean, I, I want it. Don't get me wrong. I really I really like it. I'm a SRAM guy. I like their stuff. Yeah. But I'm, I always feel like that's just an iteration. You know what I mean? Until we get rid of derailers and gears and all that stuff, I don't feel like that's true innovation. That's true. That's I I agree with you in a lot of senses, but I also have to look at from an engineering standpoint trying to figure out how to get the capacity of a ten tooth, you know, chain wrap on a ten tooth, and have the capacity of a fifty tooth took a lot of work to get and not have that derailleur hanging on the ground. Yeah. So you got to give them some innovation kudos there, but beyond that, yeah, I agree with you. Iteration award more than anything. I would love to see us just get away from, I mean, when you look at it, it's so archaic, right? Like a derailleur and gears in the chain, how they're laid out right now. It's pretty archaic. Like, you look at the carbon layups and how they run through, especially on the road side of things. You got like CFD making all the decisions on how a bike is laid up or how a, how a bike is shaped. And then you have all the different stuff calculating the stress dynamics that happen to a frame so then they can understand the layup and exactly how to do I mean, yeah. And then we just throw like, oh yeah, just throw on some cogs and a chain and a thing hanging down for a derailleur. Well, like, do you like your six pound roll off 14 speed internal hubs? Yeah. Yeah. Because that's I mean, your you other option point. at this point. Yeah. 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 Somebody needs to, somebody much smarter than I needs to get on that really quick. Absolutely. You're smart. No, yeah. not smart <laughs> enough. <laughs> Their runner up was the Shimano DI2, XT DI2 drivetrain. Uh, I'm not a DI2 fan. Uh, I've ridden it on the road, haven't ridden it on mountain bikes, ridden it on the road. And uh, the only thing that I do like about it is the near lack of physical effort to shift. You just have to press a button. Yeah. doesn't sound like a lot, but over the course of a long day, it actually does. It is kind of nice. But I don't like DI2 because it doesn't feel very positive. Like in the sense that like when I shift, it doesn't feel like I've shifted. It's so smooth, which is a good thing. But a lot of the time, if I'm putting down, putting out torque, 
going up a climb and I'm in a race situation, I get kind of scared of just like hitting that button and wondering when it's going to, it doesn't even feel like it shifts. It just goes really smooth. But having said that, it's like a feel thing and it's probably, I just need to get used to it. Yeah. But not, not a huge fan of it. No, I've had it on road. I've also had it on my last Pinarello uh, cross bike. Yeah. Which is like, by the way, beyond that is like so posh. It's absurd. You had a Pinarello cross bike. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And, uh, I have to say the only downside of it was that kind of the numbness. You didn't really have that positive shift yeah. feel, uh, when your when your hands and fingers get numb after such long distances, I could, you know, potentially miss shift or yeah. I could potentially not know that I had shifted or accidentally shift or not know which button to hit. It, yeah. There's been a lot of weird little issues, but overall, Super smooth, great. Um, I would never do it on a mountain bike. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of? So, have you felt ETAP yet? The yes, I SRAM have. road yes. ETAP stuff. Yeah. Super positive click. Definitely. Like you know, you shifted. Yeah. And uh, the there's only one button on each side. Yeah. I think that was smart by them. Yeah. Uh, I that's the that's the way I would like it too. Um, I like that a lot. Because road bikers aren't smart enough to figure out shifting anyway, so just <laughs> yeah, have an up and a down exactly, and you're yeah. done. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the I feel like if they brought that over to the dirt side of things, that could be really good. But well, what are your hesitations with? Is it just electronic shifting, or is it the interaction of actually using the shifter? Well, I mean, we know how hard I am on bikes, and we know how hard a lot of mountain bikers generally are. Yeah. Uh, when XTR Di2 came out, and I believe the the XTR rear derailleur MSRPs for just under six hundred dollars. Yeah, it's not cheap. Imagine ripping one of those off your bike. I mean, I feel bad enough about ripping off a two hundred and ninety dollar X01 rear derailleur. Yeah. Let alone a six hundred dollar. XTR DI2. Yeah. So uh, there's that, the money side of it. But then also on the mountain side, I don't really feel like, I feel like XX1 non Eagle even, because I still don't even, I don't even have Eagle yet. Yeah. And I don't know if I want it. Yeah. Until I have to. Yeah. I don't really feel like I need any smoother shifting or more positive shifting. I feel like the, the SRAM XX1 does it's phenomenally. Awesome. I love it. Yeah, and, and to be honest, I don't feel like electronic is a benefit until you don't have wires. Like, to me, there's no benefit of having me pressing the same button and it happening. It's just a motor does it instead of my thumb pressing. Like, you know what I mean? I, I don't get the benefit of that. I With ETAP, it makes sense from a mechanics perspective. You don't have to run cables. That's freaking awesome. But then you have to have three batteries. Yes, and you also have to worry about because I mean, coming from trainer road, which is the company I work for, we deal with wireless devices yeah. on a scale that most companies never deal with. Yeah. In fact, no companies really deal with on the cycling side of things. Uh, we have people because pairing, you deal with everybody's wireless, yes, everybody we're open. We deal with all of them. We have people pairing a power meter, people pairing a speed sensor, people pairing a smart trainer that sends out a power signal, people pairing a heart rate monitor. Then all of those things communicate in Bluetooth and amp plus. So they might be running a secondary head unit pairing all of that stuff. So they've got all of that, like a double redundancy going on with all those devices. And it's just, they're practically getting microwave to death with all of that, that wireless stuff that's going on around them. Right. Yeah. I mean, well, we don't know that they're getting microwave to death, but that's, you're getting a lot. There's a lot going on, right? Tinfoil hats. Aside. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Tinfoil hats aside. Uh, but that there are issues with wireless tech and I mean, they've done a good job of using an encrypted version of Bluetooth, uh, to help with that. Hopefully yeah. that helps. But I, 
I'm interested in electronic shifting. Once we get to wireless off-road, then I would consider it. Otherwise, it's just not enough. Or the only other caveat would be electronically actuated dropper posts. Yes. Like, like Maguro that. dropped this year, but it's not DI2 electronic. It's yeah. their proprietary. Yeah. So there's been rumors of, of Shimano and their... DI2 actuation of a dropper post. Yeah. Because if you look at their, you know, their lower junction box or their battery case, makes sense. there's an extra port even when running a two-by system. Yeah. What is that extra port for? Totally makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to get to dropper posts in a bit. Yeah. They, they gave their honorable mention for innovation to the Maxxis Minion Plus size tire. I don't know if that's an innovation, but sure, why not? Well, we talked I, about the Minion last week. Yeah, and I, I think the big thing with with Maxxis's ability to do the plus tires is that they're doing them lighter than everybody else. That's with true. With your EXO or with your double down casing. So they're they're doing what other brands aren't doing as far as keeping the weight down and still making a tire true. that has good protection. Yeah, and honestly, if we can get just in a, in a dream world, we can get plus size tires and wheels down to the weight of what we currently have. Yeah. That would be fantastic. And with the sidewall support. Yep. That's another, you know, fat kid problem. Yep, exactly. Uh, Their next thing, rear shock, uh, they gave the winner to the push 11.6. I mean, it's got a lot of dials and fancy CNC going on, so that looks like it's cool. And I'm sure that it functions. Everybody, well. everybody who rides it says they love it. Um, yeah. I know a few people on their Evil Reckonings that have them, and a couple people on Yetis that have them, and they love them. But I've never been a fan of anything that Push has ever released for you know valving systems on Fox and Rockshock shocks. So maybe they do things right when it's just them. Maybe. I, I mean, if know. they're trying to fix someone else's inept product or, you know, I don't want to say (laughs) inept, but you know, there was a, there was a a time between 2010 and 2014 when nobody put out a really good front fork. Yeah. So push was trying to fix that. I don't think they did a good job made. They might've improved it, but I didn't, I've never liked anything that they've released. So we'll see if we could get our hands on one and play with it and ride it. I maybe we'll have some input, but for now, no idea. Yeah, no idea. Then they gave the runner up to the deluxe Rock Shocks Deluxe Shock, which, which we just talked about. Yep. Makes sense. <clears throat> and then they talked about the Crane Creek Cane Creek Double Barrel Coil IL. Uh, the inline. Yeah. I, sure. Well, yeah, we just kind of talked about Cane Creek too. I mean, it, it it would be great to see them do it well. They make really good stuff usually, but yeah. the durability issues, as long as those are taken care of, yeah. I'm sure it's dialed. Yeah. So the one thing, durability aside, their support is very good for money. They do have great They're support. They're extremely responsive. Yes. I know my brother has sent his shock back and he gets it back like two days later. Yeah. So like they're, they're really good yeah. with that. So their protective gear of the year, they give it to the Liat Airflex Pro knee pads. My, I'm going to go on a crazy rant aside here. Uh, but Liat, like their, their neck braces don't buy it at all. I, I don't buy it. Um, I don't think that they actually, it's arguable that they actually make you any safer in the event of a crash, perhaps from one perspective of helping your neck injury out. Sure. But what that does to everything else, I, yeah, I it might save know. your neck, but it'll crush your collarbone is what you're getting at or your spine or your spine lower down. Yeah. Basically, they have in the center, it comes down, so it takes all of that stress that would basically go into folding your neck to the side, to the back, to the front, in an excessive angle that would cause a cervical spinal injury, right? 
And then basically what it does is it transfers it to two places or three places. One, your collarbones. And usually if it's going to be your collarbones, also your head. Yeah. To your head, which it's going to make your head an immobile object so that when you hit the ground and you're going head first, sure, your neck might be okay, but it's going to transfer all that force into your head. Exactly. Not great. And then the third one is it transfers it just lower down on the neck brace, which is your sternum on the liet. It pushes right on your sternum. Yeah. Or in the back, it shifts it down to the upper thoracic range of your spine. Yeah. Which Ricky James, pro motocross racer, there's a bunch of, or he was an amateur guy, but there are a bunch of spinal cord injuries from people that have been wearing those those braces and braces like that. Yeah. That sure, I there's no way in telling that if they did crash and they didn't have one on, they could have gotten a neck injury. Of course. But And maybe instead they're just paralyzed from the waist down. Either way, it sucks, but I think it's just an oversight for people to just to jump in and think that, yeah. you know, a Leah brace is going to save you. You know, and that's, and that's the thing coming from the automotive industry where I was in the, in the racing industry prior to my days in the bike world, you know, you look at like the Hans device, it's essentially the same thing. Yeah. Uh, but the problem is that's only one part of a safety system of a vehicle. Totally. Head restraint seats. There's a lot more at play and that is only one aspect of it. And I think that the Liat was kind of a. Let's market this to say, hey, we're going to stop neck injuries, not really considering what else it's implying or implicating. And I don't think Liet play. I, I don't want to cast stones here and say that Liet was the one that, that played off of this, but we had Ernesto Fonseca that had a spinal cord injury. We had Ricky James that had a spinal cord injury. We had a bunch of other ones in amateur racers in the motocross world. Then we had guys like uh, David Bailey, who one of the best racers ever to grace the sport and he's been injured for years. Um, but well-spoken, extremely intelligent, understands the sport to a really high level and extremely well-respected. And he and a lot of other guys, they all kind of got on this band bandwagon together. Like we need to do something about this. We need to stop these spinal cord injuries. And they all pushed this product. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the answer. I'm not saying it was their fault, but it was almost like an emotional reaction. It was like a 9-11 thing. Like after the terrorist attack, everybody was just like, yes, bomb the Middle East. Like yes. go after it, right? Because we were so emotional after that. And I think that it was kind of the, a similar thing, obviously on a much less severe scale. But of course. I think they kind of, uh, the emotions of the people that rode in that sport were ripened them so that they were ready to be just sold whatever device would, that would fix that problem. Exactly. And then as mountain biking tends to do, it just copies what it sees from the moto world in a lot of ways and people bought them. But that being said, I'm sure their knee pads are fantastic. Yes. So <laughs> you won't get a it. neck injury with their <laughs> yeah. knee pads, yeah. which, uh, they, they just look like a normal, like slip on minimalist knee pad. Yeah. Similar to G form or something like that. And I'm sure it's got some sort of reactive gel base, blah, blah, blah. It's probably a great knee pad. Probably. I'm sure. Yeah, this is kind of a boring category. And then the Alpine Stars Paragon knee pads, sure, sounds great. Uh, honorable mention, specialized ambush comp and Bell Super 3R helmets. And the reason that they put these in was kind of like they're giving you a lot of benefit for the cost. So, okay. I mean, I, I get that. But, uh, I mean, MIPS is another thing that they're putting into, like, helmets and on the mountain bike side of things. It's not really the MIPS that you have in the in the motocross side of things. No. That's like so that your helmet pads can like shift. Yeah. And I guess like it could help a bit, but it's. It cre- it's, creates a deflection of energy. 
to a certain degree, but it depends on what the impact is. It's not, that's for a glancing blow. That's all that MIPS is really meant to help you with. And with a motocross helmet MIPS, you're talking about that. It's between the shell and the EPS liner. Yes. Whereas this is a thin plastic shell with your pads on it, flexing on elastomer to the actual EPS shell. Yeah. So it's kind of like, it's very different. I don't think it's quite as effective as the, well, it's like a derivative of exactly, you know, yeah. Um, that Bell Super 3R. I've got a really weird... Well, one, I don't fit into Bell helmets because I have a big head. So, so I've never tried on a Bell bicycle helmet. Okay. Bell motocross helmets I know are are known for fitting people with a round-shaped head. Okay. And I have a shoebox for a head. Okay. It's like, it like similar. If I were to headbutt somebody, a corner would cut them. Yes. It's like extremely rectangular. Yeah. So I've always been a showy guy on the moto side of things, and specialized helmets fit me great. Um, newer POC helmets like the Tactile and the Octal, that's what I use now, okay. and, and those things fit me great, but Bells have never fit me. Yeah, now, and that's it's funny because their helmets physically don't go big enough for my head. Huh. I, they don't fit on my head. You have a huge So head. I don't like the Super 3R for that, yeah. um, and I'm a Giro guy. Giro helmets fit me perfectly. Yeah, I run the Montero MIPS and love that helmet. Fits perfect. So what I don't understand from the whole BRG camp is releasing the Super 3R and the new Switchblade, yeah. which seems to be a way better removable chin bar design than yeah. the Super 3R. This so, so if you've ever like looked at those weird like video, like if you looked up like motocross video game and you found something on like iTunes. And you would see these riders that have really weird looking like the bikes are like named some like a Kazayuki or something. And it's all like fake stuff. And they have these weird looking helmets on. That's like pretty much how they modeled this helmet after like crappy video game looking helmets. Yeah. It's ugly. The visor's stubby. Yep. Uh, it's the chin bar is super long. Yeah. It's just, it's not a great looking helmet. No. I don't know. I would, if I'm looking for a removable chin bar, I'm switchblade all the way. Yeah. No question. But I'd rather just have an enduro helmet and get a Bell Full 9, which which is funny because I actually race downhill in a Bell Full 9. That's true. That's the only, but I have a double XL on that to fit my fat head, which is kind of odd. But a large head. I do. Uh, dropper posts. The winner was the Fox Transfer. I haven't used it. Have you? I, I've installed them on a few custom builds lately. And I'm really impressed with the transfer. I was super stoked to find out that they were doing a stealth routed yes. uh, post. The one thing I really do like about it is the uh, the ability to do, there's multiple different levers you can pick, whether you have a two by system or a super three by nice. system. I really like that. Um, and I really like that it's just a very foolproof design. And it's funny because the, the transfer and the original DOS are... Uh, with my friends at Fox, they're the only non us produced product and they had literally no failures through them, no issues, no <laughs> wow. anything. And so I, I just think it's a really good foolproof design. And like they said, it's, it's, you know, a lot of the reviewers said it's going to be hard to improve on the DOS. Uh, but I think they did a good job and they yeah. offered in the performance series with the black coating or with the Kashima coating in the factory series. So that's kind of cool. So you can kind of match your black, suspension. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I like that idea of matching your suspension. Stanchions should match your dropper post. Yeah. I think that's like a, you know, tie matching your socks type of a thing. Like the, it just looks better that way. Yeah. So, um, 9.8 fall line got the runner up. I have never used a 9.8. I know that, th- 
I've heard really good things about the reliability of these posts. Yes. The, the, they're, they're a little heavier, though. They are heavier, and they great reliability. Um, the new race face turbine dropper is a fall. Essentially, it's a fall line. I know that. Huh. And so, yes, they're heavier, but they're also... The one thing I really love about them is setting them up initially and cable routing is actually easier because they're the only one that actually runs the cable end at the lever and then mm. you cut it at the dropper post That's side, nice. whereas everybody else does it backwards. So it's easier to set the the fall line 9.8 and the race face turbine up. From a mechanic standpoint, it's actually easier to set those up initially, and then that makes sense. So sizing them is actually easier. Hmm. Yeah. Then they gave the honorable mention to the Bond Trader drop line. I know I, nothing I, about it. I know nothing about that either. Um, it says it, they say it just works and doesn't call attention to itself. Okay. And it retails for 300 bucks and it's, it's not a KS Lev. So it's probably good. Oh yeah. You have uh, one of those on your cross bike. It did, well, I did. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't work. So I oh, sent it back. Imagine that. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, here's my gripe with dropper posts. Do we even need oil damping system, everything else like that? Can't we have just a truly mechanical spring bound system that has a dust seal on there to keep the dust out? And it's just simple. Like we don't need any damping or anything else like that. You've clearly never been impaled by a gravity dropper or it's a specialized, uh, their command post command post. Yeah. Now granted they, they come up with a speed that will pass pain into future generations. If you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. They, uh, you will be sack tapped or smashed by those posts. Maybe there's a way we can slow that down. I don't know, but the beauty of the fall line and the, the turbine is yes, there's a damping system, but it's a, it's a lot less intrusive and a lot better on reliability than like even the reverb. Yeah. And that's it. So I have the B one and I have the B one as well. You do as well. Uh, I started getting the same rock shocks reverb problems. My B one, which a, a, Apparently they fixed everything. Got the same issues with that thing after like three months yeah. of riding. Which we got it warranted. They gave, yeah. sent me a which brand new one for they, you last yeah. week. Which was awesome of them. Yeah. Hopefully I don't have the issues. The new one's mounted up. I got to give you the old one. And I haven't had any issues with mine. And, and it's seven months old now? Yeah. And our CEO, he at Trainer Road, he has one on his 4.5, his, his, his Yeti and no issues. Yeah. He's ridden that on the trainer too. So, and that was their like... At their guess was like, maybe it's because you've been riding it on the trainers, put excessive torque on it or anything else like that. Yeah. And it should be able to hold up. Absolutely. That, right. So, I mean, if you think about the stress I put on it when I'm hitting bumps and everything else sitting down in the saddle, it's a whole lot more stress. Absolutely. But, um, yeah, kind of frustrating. I just want a more simple dropper post, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, then best fork, uh, Fox rhythm with fit grip damper. That's their cheap fork like lower end one. This is since they bought, uh, Tenzo. Um, what was the, what's the, why can't I think of the fork company that they purchased last year? Sun tour. No, no not sun tour. Wasn't Marzoki. God, why Marzocchi. couldn't I think of that? Yep. Which Marzoki was always known for having a good feel. Yes. I had a They're monster T on my old Schwinn straight eight way back eight. in the day. That was a motocross fork set up for a downhill bike. Heavy. It was heavy. Yeah. Um, the, the grip damper is actually an amazing setup. They use the same damper in their, uh, in their performance series. And it's actually a really good setup. It's not quite the fit for, but for the price, you can't beat it. And I think Fox is really doing a good job with their rhythm series. I think it's actually going to be a good fork. It's actually pretty cool to see like cheap forks can actually be good now because yeah. Cheap forks haven't changed for years. They've all been really bad. Like the recon golds. 
yeah, or the sector oh, or yeah. like any, yeah, they've all been really bad. Yeah. So, or any of the sun tour ones that are lower line like that. So, yep. uh, rock shock Sid, they gave to that one. It's extremely light. It does for XC. It's a very rock shocks feel. It's a little more firm. Yeah. It doesn't have as much initial plushness, but it is perfect for XC. Yeah. It is such a good fork. Yeah. And I, I, I know many people that, that sympathize with me on this. It has a more XC feel than Fox, even Fox's new, um, the step, step cast, cast one. Yeah. That it's still the, the Fox tends to be so plush. It's awesome for enduro style racing or anything like that or more, even good trail riding. But for XC, a lot of the time you want a bike that feels pretty stiff, kind of like a race car, you know, and you have like really stiff suspension and low profile tires that pass a lot of the road feel up. Yeah. Kind of want that with an XC bike. So, uh, yeah, the SID's awesome. Uh, I, I like the RS one more, but you know, anyways, uh, that'll probably get me crucified. You weirdos in your upside down forks. Yeah. And then MRP ribbon was their honorable mention. I played with one of these once. Huh. Um, our friend Teal Stetson Lee, she's an MRP she athlete. Is. She is. And we put one of these it. on her, I believe it was on her spark. And it was actually not a bad feeling fork. It was a, a little heavier than a Fox, a little heavier than um, like a, what's a step down from a Sid uh, on the XC the, side? Uh, not Reba. Reba. Yep. Is whatever their high end Reba yep. is right. It was on par with that. I would say not bad, you know, so, or, or like a Fox 32 performance series, you know, if it on feels par. good. Yeah. And it felt pretty decent actually. And solid. Yeah. <clears throat> and the last uh, bit of news that we're covering is the Epic rides Carson city off road. The registration just opened for that. That's a race that is near and dear to our hearts. Well, quite literally near to us. Cause well, cause you raced it. And yeah. And it's close to us. Yeah. Um, it's on trails that we know well yes. in that region. Um, it's a rad Epic rides does everything right. Um, it seems like with, with XC racing and this course, which let's get into that after let's get into what they do with XC racing. Cause that's a whole different issue, Yeah, but this course is crazy. So and there's a 15 mile, 15 miler. That's actually awesome. And more, I mean, people should do that. Yeah. It's, it's so much fun. Uh, it goes over one, like a, a trail that you'll curse switchbacks because it has so many switchbacks on I it. I think I counted 300. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, I have a YouTube video up on, or a video up on my YouTube channel where I write it. And when I was editing it, I was like, this is absurd. There are so many switchbacks. You edited out most of the corners because there's just too many Yeah, of them. I think I like, and I actually had it a switchback counter. And it was like, <laughs> ding, 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 as it was going up. And then it got to the point where I was like, I think I was at 22 and I was like, I'm done. Yeah. Like, I'm not counting this anymore. Yep. There's a bunch of them. But uh, it's on the Ash Canyon to Kings Canyon connector trail. Yeah. And uh, this follows it south to north. Yeah. Pretty rad trail. And then you come out the creek trail at the end, which is a really fun little trail. Yep. It's a cool race. Then they have a 35-mile one that's a little more in-depth. And then they have the 50-miler, which is pretty darn intense. So the 50-miler, the, the to give people an idea, the climb, the first climb, you climb all the way up to like... Marlette Lake. 8,500 feet. Yep. From 4,000. From 4,000. And it's pretty much a consistent climb the whole way up. I know that the profile may seem like it flattens out when you look at it. It doesn't. It doesn't. It's a lie. It just continues to climb forever. Um, I was talking to Jeff Kabush on the Trainer Road uh, Ask a Cycling Coach podcast about this race. Yeah. And I think that it took them an hour and 20 minutes to get up this thing, which is absurd because it would take us normal humans like two hours. Yeah. 
or me never because I just didn't do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it is a long climb, yeah. man. It is long. And then you drop down some pretty actually steep stuff. They went down a cool spot. They get to go down a trail that's totally, it's on private land. Yeah. Um, and they got permission to go down it, yep. uh, which is pretty sweet. And then you end up taking the Ash to Kings connector, but you go the other way. You, you go, go north, north south, to south, which is the more fun way. I think it's way more fun yeah. that way. Yeah. And, oh, that's... A, that's a kick in the pants because you're really exhausted from riding all that time at high elevation. Then you have to climb back up again. Yeah. That last climbs at what mile 37, I think. Yep. It's at mile 30, 35, 35. Okay. And you will climb from mile 35 to mile 41. And then it's just nine miles of descent and road back. Yep. And here's the crazy thing about that road. When you start this race, they start in downtown in front of the Capitol and downtown cars. The, the state is awesome. The state Capitol. Yeah. And the, they've redone the whole downtown area. They were doing it in the middle of the race last year. Now it's super nice. It's yes. all finished. Yep. But you start there and you start going up this road and the road ends up just like consistently hanging out at like 13%. Yeah. It's like, and it stays that way for a long time. That's up Kings Canyon road. Yeah. yeah. And then you hit the fire road and it decides to go steeper yeah. uh, for fun. Yep. So brutal course, but super cool. And they have a fat tire crit before that. It's all on road. And there were 16 turns, I think in one lap and when everybody's running 700 to to 800 mil wide bars yeah and you're all trying to fit in two lane streets it got really interesting i did that race last year and it was uh, i i consider myself a good crit racer but that was a totally different ball game because positioning was so key so much more important um so yeah it was pretty interesting to see but Anyways, it's a cool race. Registration just opened. It's discounted until like the 7th of January. Yeah. And then it goes up a bit. But if you were to pick one race for XC style or just like general mountain bike thing to do, it's it's rad. It is so cool. They have live bands playing in the streets. They have um, all the local businesses get involved. And like the restaurants have these crazy promotions and everyone's out barbecuing on the streets. It's like, yeah. It is a cool feel at that crit that we had. I, when was the last time you saw a cross country mountain bike race where the whole entire course was lined? And at that, that no. crit, there was not a single spot along the course. There weren't people. Yeah. People come out and they, it was actually a really good spectator yeah. setup. I, it was, a, it was phenomenal. It was rad. The governor yeah. was there. Yeah. He was hanging out. He was stoked. It was so cool. So they do a bunch of things right with XC racing. Yeah. But XC racing is dying. It's, I think. Yeah. And I'm an XC racer. Yeah. And I love it. But I mean, um, Scott Tedro pulled out of the, uh, of the XC series, uh, geez, it, almost two years ago now. And when he pulled out of the series, he was really, I think it's XC's fault. It's all of our faults for letting one guy, we became so dependent upon him that basically the whole, like the, the pro XCT series, the U S cup, everything else he was really like bankrolling a huge chunk of that. And thankfully he did. And I'm sure that he kept a lot of people with jobs that didn't have them otherwise. And he did a lot of great things for the sport, but then he wanted to get a world cup and he wanted to get it at Benelli, which I just don't get because Benelli is soul sucking and yeah. terrible. Um, but he wanted to get a world cup there and didn't happen. Yeah. And uh, from one person that described, they said it was kind of like, well, I'm taking my ball and going home. You know? Yeah. Not getting it, fine. I'm done. I've put in too much. And I totally get that. And that is okay. Yeah. Because he was the one that was really keeping the sport afloat. But shame on us for kind of becoming dependent upon that because once he's pulled out, there was this big effect. 
and and to his credit, he still supported a bunch of racers, by the way. Yeah. Through the the road or ride biker alliance and everything else. Like he's supporting a bunch of athletes, and I'm sure in ways that we don't even know. Yeah. He's supporting them. So kudos on that, Scott. But uh man, the races were different. They were really different. I mean, low turnout, not a lot of vendors, uh, just not a lot of excitement, hardly anybody there. There were still like racers and everything else, but it was just compared to when Scott was there, it was just low spectator turnout, low. Yeah. Yeah, Everything else. And, and I kind of, I looked around and I was like, this is like a 5k. Yeah. And what I mean by that is that it was just participants and their families. Yeah. That's it. Which is, it makes sense. And for a lot of racing, that's what it tends to be, you know, but I almost wondered if that's like the way that XC racing is going. Well in America. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like a weekend thing to do. Like you just like, pick up your bike and go and do it. And if XC racing went that way, I think that would be good. Yeah. I think that it's kind of like separating though, because then there's Epic rides and they're taking the cross country or perhaps they're taking the trail riding thing and they're just really doing a good job with trail riding. Yeah. But it's kind of under the guise of XC Yeah. because they, they've made those events extremely successful whiskey and, and all the other ones that they do. Yeah. They're really good. They're yeah. All of them are good. Everybody who does them loves them. Yeah. So, I mean, is XC dead? Is it dying? Is it dead? I think in America, yes. I think part of it, um, I, obviously Epic rides aside, I think that uh, XC is dead or mm-hmm. on its way to dying. The problem is you've got too many other fun type races to do. You know, the look rise enduro. of Enduro. And, and Look at California Enduro Series this year has gone to eight events. We started uh, the first year I did it uh, when I raced expert class, it was five events. And here now we've got two EWS qualifiers. We've got, you know, uh, partnership with uh, national or well with NAET. Uh, we've got, so there's a lot of these, uh, it's just growing so astronomically. Let's take your average family that rides, right? You would think that XC would be more a family oriented thing than downhill or something else, right? And some downhill, yes, participate family participatory thing, right? Okay. In other words, the whole family could enjoy or partake. Okay. But the thing is, think about an enduro race. Let's say your mom rides, your little brother rides, and you ride, and your dad rides, right? If you go to an XC race, your mom doesn't want to line up with all the lycra clad people that are going to be looking, you know, like kind of gritting their teeth and not speaking to them at the line and really like serious and focused and kind of that roadie cutthroat vibe. Yeah. They don't want, you don't want to do that on a casual Saturday. No. Enduro, on the other hand, you ride up with a bunch of people at whatever pace you want. You get to chat with everybody at the top and chill and have a good time, get some snacks, get whatever else you want. You rip down the fun sections of trail, you meet up again, and then you connect to the same spot at whatever pace you want. And you talk about that last rip and downhill, whatever it was, and it's fun. That's why I think that has a lot more to do with the death of cross country than a lot of people will give credit. Yeah, and, and I think that cross country can still live on. Yes. I think that I honestly, I think that if it, there are a lot of different ways it could go. And I'm not saying that this is the answer, but if it did go the 5K route in the sense that it's kind of like it becomes common to have mountain bike races in a community. And maybe they're done like a cyclocross race in the sense that it's like at a park. You know what I mean? And like, it's just like you have a course laid out with tape at a park, then, and you just kind of make do and you do what you can. But, it's like uh, everybody can join low barrier of entry thing. Yeah. That would be cool. Yeah. I think cross country did get a little intimidating for the average people. Yeah. And, I, and I'm and i one of those guys. I'm serious. 
Yeah. And when I line up, I am in Lycra and I am serious. Yeah. And I know that turns a lot of people off. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, who knows? Now Some roll up jokes. next to you for like a turkey trot cross country race before Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah. You know, that's less intimidating. Exactly. You just look like an idiot in your Lycra. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it's going to be interesting to see. I, I, I don't know what XC does there, but Epic Rides is doing it right regardless. So if you're looking for an XC race to do, check that one out. So. And remember, they did sell out last year early. I think they sold out end of March early. or early April last year for a June event. So yeah. get on it. Yes. And they've got early bird pricing, I think, right now. Yeah. So yeah. get in on it. Let's move on to the two questions that we got because things are still new. So if you're listening to this, you can go to mtbpodcast.com and submit your questions. We come through them and we'll see what we can find. This is kind of what I do on the, this is all we do on the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast for Trainer Road. We just answer people's cycling and triathlon related coaching questions. Like they have questions about their training or their training plans and we answer them. So, but nerds. So, yeah, 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 that's what we are, right? <laughs> and we're happy about it. But it, so, but if you want to submit questions, we'll come through them and we'll add them in. At this point, we probably won't have a whole lot to come through. So please submit them. Probably a great chance of getting it answered. And Steven's a bike mechanic, awesome technical rider, uh, extremely anal about all things detail that extend outside of bikes too, to garage floors and to everything else like that. And then I'm, I'm on the gear side of things too, like very technical with that stuff and on the training side of things. So any questions you have, you can submit them. Chris submitted this one. He says, Hey guys, long time listener, first time question submitter. That was a good joke. Long time listener. We've only been around for one episode, but anyways, he says, I've just gotten my fork and shock back from the shop after a much needed service. And I'm wondering how to set it up. I ride a 2012 giant rain and I've never loved the way it rides. The back end feels like a blown out pogo stick and the fork feels either too soft or rock hard. I can back this up. I had a 2010. It felt like that. It drove me nuts. Sounds right. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping it will perform better after this service, but I've never done anything more than have my sag set when I pick up the bike. Any advice would be greatly appreciated. Thanks. So suspension setup tips. So there's two fundamental issues here. One fork is a lot more tunable than the shock right out of the gate, depending on what you have. Mm -hmm. But essentially, uh, if the back end feels like a blown out pogo stick. It sounds like you've got compression and rebound settings to make. So uh, the pogo stick effect that I feel mm -hmm. is going to be because of too fast of rebound. So yes. whatever rear shock you have, your little red knob, you need to add rebound damping. You need to slow the rear end down from bucking back. The plus sign means it will add more damping. Doesn't mean that it will make it faster. Yeah, Big more damping means slower rebound. Correct. So plus means slower Exactly. That's what you want. You want to slow that down a little bit. Yep. Um, depending on if you're a heavier rider, you actually don't want to go too slow on the rebound because then you end up with what they call suspension stacking, Correct. Which, which means the suspension doesn't have time to rebound fully from an impact before it hits the next impact. And then you just start sinking further and further into the travel until you bottom it out. So rock gardens, breaking bumps, uh, any like successive hits that are going to happen on the trail. If you have too slow of a rebound, you'll go into that next bump only halfway through your suspension stroke, right? Yes, exactly. So you'll have less travel to deal with. Yeah. And then that keeps getting worse if the bumps keep going after that. Yes. So yeah, yeah. Uh, now on the fork, 
similar, but you also, depending on the fork, you can actually play with uh, with volume, with air volume. Correct. And you can completely change your spring curve. So really you want to find somebody local to you uh, who knows their suspension stuff. I'm kind of one of the guys here in town in uh, Reno, in Reno yeah. that that specializes in this. Um, but you really want to find someone locally to dial in your specific shock and fork to your weight, your riding style and your bike. Yeah. Um, you know, there's not, you can't get into a whole lot more until you're talking a specific bike. Yeah. And also a specific person. Of course. A lot of people just ride their bikes, whatever they have. Absolutely. Sure. And they may not be able to tell the difference, but I'm extremely particular. I think that's from years of motocross doing, and, and, and to be clear, when I would get a bike, I would take my suspension. I would never ever ride my bike with stock suspension. It would be sent off to pro circuit. It would be sent off to RG three and it would be done before I would even ride the bike. Yeah. So I would get a new bike. It wouldn't come out of the crate. The suspension would go away. Yes. And then it would come back all set up for me. Right. And And that's when you start the fine tuning. And exactly. It's set up for me and I'm doing air quotes. You can't hear that in podcast world, but I'm it's set up for me. And he actually is doing those air quotes. Yeah, I am. But it's, long i'm i'm i spend a month after that even sometimes usually and it certainly got less with time but you know you spend a lot of time suspension testing yeah and here's the one thing that i've figured out uh i would start usually with the rear end of the bike and move to the front yes i would have kind of a baseline where i know i could start with the front and it wouldn't be just like a rock or too soft but then i would really start to fine-tune the rear of the bike and then i would adjust the front based off of that yes now, there are a lot of different ways that you can get very detailed on your rear suspension setup and, and how it's going to react, especially if you have something like a Cane Creek yeah. where you've got a lot of adjustability. Or one of the X2 setups from Fox. Yep. Or, yeah. yeah, so you can get very detailed with that. But I this is how I start out. So first thing, sag. Um, I usually run less sag than most people like. Cross-country nerd. Yep, exactly. Uh, um, so I like to run, I'm usually at about 20% but I don't go any higher than that. Okay. Uh, so they usually recommend somewhere in between 20 and 30% is what most people recommend. Yep. And I'm at 20 and that's what I like. I've even, uh, on a specialized camera, I had 15 and that's what felt right for me on that bike. Right. If that felt right for your riding style. Great. Exactly. So, and what I mean by felt right is that the bike behaved how I wanted it to behave in various situations. It didn't buck me for, it didn't buck me around. It also didn't feel dead and flat. Yeah. It didn't bounce all over when I was pedaling, but it also didn't feel like it was squatting a bunch while I was pedaling. It was the Goldilocks. It was in the middle. Of course. Uh, one of the things that I do after that then is I, to dial in my rebound and this is just to get a starting point to do the curb test. And that is just, pretty simple and it doesn't work for all bikes. Certain suspension systems are going to make it hard for you to do this, but with a single pivot or anything else like that, that I've used, um, or even I've used a DW before with this, I drop off the curb sitting down, not going super fast. And I don't like jump off the curb. I just drop off of it. And I look for my suspension just to drop and then rebound and just stay put then after that you want it to rebound as fast as it compresses essentially yeah and i'm what i'm trying to look for is basically if i drop off of that curb and my suspension goes down then up then down then up that's bad of course. i wanted to just go down then up yeah and then stabilize there. well that's what damping does exactly right so um i don't want it to be bouncing all around so i'll adjust my rebound damping and i'll slow it down if it's going down and up down and up down and up yeah. i'll slow it down so that it hits just there but if I feel like it might be too slow, I'll just keep quickening that rebound dampening or lessening 
the damping, forgive me, on that shock. So then it'll just get me to the point where I feel like it rebounds quickly, but it doesn't bounce afterward. Yeah. That's usually my starting point. And then I go from there. And in almost every case for me personally, I like to run more damping than that. Once I get out on the trail, um, I like a little bit more. I'm also very active on my bike and I am a very much a line picker instead of just a, a line, a straight line guy through whatever chunder it is. I always try to pick lines and, and go through. So I don't run into as many situations where my suspension will just be packing down like that. So I can run a little bit, you know, more damping and I like the way it feels. So you like as much damping as possible until it starts packing in. Exactly. Okay. Yep. That's kind of the feel that I like. I'm really active on the bike, like I said. So I'm, I'm hopping around. I'm doing a lot of that stuff. So I kind of make up for, um, that feeling, I guess that a lot of people like the springiness in their bike. And, and I like that too, but I make up for a lot of that just with body English. Then after I get the rear shock set up, the fork is what I then set up after that. And really with rebound damping, I'm just looking for the fork to match the rear and this. And the way that I find that out is by jumping and hitting different obstacles where it takes me airborne. And if I realize that it's kicking me nose down or that if I'm going off of it, I feel like it's just wanting to go nose high all the time. Yeah then I'll adjust damping so that it makes it feel like it's more balanced. That's basically it. Um, in the fork, I'll usually run compression to what people say, but slightly I'll run a little bit more sag than what most people like in the front because I like my front wheel to feel really planted and supple on the ground. Okay. So that's, I guess my suspension preferences, but it's, that's N equals one. That's the thing about suspension tuning. You can use something like the curb test and you can use like basic 20 to 30% to get you in the ballpark. But after that, you have to do the adjustments based on feel. Exactly. And I usually like to go one or two clicks in one direction and then, or I'll do two clicks at first, feel what it is. And then I'll go one click back if I need to. But I try to make all movements two clicks at a time. And then I can always have the intermediate step to go back if I feel like I've gone too far. Yep. So those are the tips I would say. It'll be interesting once Quark releases that little suspension, um, like accelerometer that's supposed to test that stuff. Yeah. See how that works. Uh, Derek, the next question and the last question that we have, he says with Steven being a legit mechanic in a previous life, can he comment on whether or not the cost for park tools is worth it? I have a hard time believing their tools are that. And he says that in all caps, that much better than cheaper alternatives. Uh, Short answer. Yes. Wow. Uh, There's, there's a few brands out there, some new up and coming boutique brands that actually have nicer tools than park mm. that are as expensive, if not more expensive. I think of like Silka, but they make small style stuff, but they make really nice stuff. Yeah. And I'm thinking like Bursman, you know, they're, they're a yeah. new up and coming tool company. Um, and then also, you know, Pedro's too. Um, they've got Dude. some good tools that are out there now and they're best tire levers in my opinion, by the way. Absolutely. Love the Pedro's tire levers. Yep. Um, so essentially, yes, park tools are worth the money. And if you look at, you know, from the automotive industry, again, you look at your snap on your Matco and your Mac tools, uh, take a 15 millimeter open end wrench from any brand. And I guarantee you that one of those three fits snugger and doesn't round the ed- you know, the corners of your, your hex bolts like a craftsman would. Yeah. Same thing goes for park. And a lot of the other, the high-end boutique brands of tools, yeah. they do make an absolute difference. Yeah, I, I mean, I've had, on the automotive side, like you said, I've had a set of Matco um, Allen sockets. I've had them for, geez, probably 12, 13 years. Yeah. Gone through so much abuse. Yeah. And they're just fine. Yeah. 
Absolutely. They, and they fit perfectly. They never run anything out They're They're awesome. That's the thing about park tools. I feel like you buy them once. Yes. And if you buy the other ones, then you are potentially buying the same tool four times. Yeah. The and only also thing, the parts that you break. Absolutely. Yeah. It's and the only thing that I will say is, um, I'm not a huge fan of parks spoke wrenches mm. because I feel like spoke wrenches, especially some of the wheels that, uh, like if you look at, uh, the high tension wheels like your Easton Havens and Havocs and, yep. and some of the more proprietary where they're putting 160 KGF onto a spoke. Uh, I have had issues with parks rounding off, um, spoke nipples huh. and which ones do you use? Uh, I actually like? haven't found one that I like better. Wow. Um, but I feel like, uh, when it comes to like brake lines on cars where you have that open, but not totally open end wrench yeah. where it's going to hook yeah. all six corners of a bolt. I think that that's a, something that I would like to see spoke wrenches that do something similar. That'd be cool. Cause you could do that too. You just yeah. slide it up. Yeah. You It'd just slide it up onto the spoke and then you can get it off. Yeah. So I think that that's something that's a design improvement that needs to happen in the spoke world. Um, but you look at a lot of the other brands Kick like start that. You, you somebody's going to do that. Right yes. Now. Someone will donate $20 for that. Yeah. So, yeah. uh, with, with that said, you know, your high tension wheels are, uh, I think they're, you know, few and far between. And, you know, the brands that do high tension, like Mavic, you know, they have their own specific spokes and their own specific spoke wrenches that are more like a Torx head. So you don't have the rounding issues that you do with standard square nipples there. Yeah. The one thing from, well, there are multiple things from park tool that I think are kind of silly and and overpriced, but their bike stand. I go, it's good. Okay. But I bought a crappy, like Amazon bike stand. Okay. It is not as good as the park one. Okay. But when I look at the cost difference, it's like, yeah, this is very much okay. Can we be honest about something? Yeah. yeah. In 2012, I purchased, I don't even know what brand it is used. Yeah. Mechanic stand from a guy who used to work for MTBR back in the day. Yeah. And then moved up to Reno and he doesn't even work in the bike industry anymore. Yeah. Bought it for 75 bucks off of like the local bike meetup. Yeah. Group. And it's I a no name one. And it's a no name. It works perfectly it works. fine. It's great. Yeah. So yeah, bike stands. <clears throat> I don't really, you know, think park makes good ones. Yeah. The other thing that I don't like from park, their rotor truing attachment for their truing stands. <laughs> yeah. That is the dumbest so dumb. attachment ever. Yeah. You don't stupid. need that. No, you don't. No. Um, so yeah, I, if you are going to get like a generic stand, go for one that doesn't have a dial that you turn to close down on your seat post or wherever else you're attaching it. Go for one that has a cam lever. A cam lock. Yeah. It's going to be so much better. Um, and then also look for one that, you know, not a bad option if you have the garage space or a workbench is you can find ones that are just the arm that reach out from there and you can get them for so cheap. Yeah. And they're, they're solid. They're really good. So yeah, that's what I would say on that. Um, we'll, we'll close out cause we're kind of getting long on this one, but, um, we'll try to keep we're them in an hour. Giving people their money's worth. Yeah. It's free, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> Wait, what? So yeah. <laughs> um, but we'll just do our picks really quick. Uh, really quick one. So my truck got broken into this week. Uh, sad day. I actually didn't know that it got broken into. It did. Yeah. Oh. Right here at the house. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, and, uh, apparently it's a guy, this is a side note, but there's like a crew of people that have been going around Reno, like our region, they're going to more affluent neighborhoods and they've been going through and they've been using a range extender for keyless ignition cars. So basically they get close to your car 
your car is constantly putting out a signal to sense if there's a key nearby. Okay. And when it senses that your smart key is nearby, it says, oh, okay, cool. As soon as you touch the door, I'll unlock, right? That's how keyless ignition of cars course. work. Yeah. So basically they carry around this booster that when it finds that signal, it expands that signal so that it, it encompasses the house that you're at. We're talking like it's like two, 300 yards that it boosts that signal. So then your key, when it's in your house, even though the car is locked, it thinks that the key is close. And then they just get right in. Ah. Just very, very So it was, the, very it was the wife's Mini, not your Tacoma. No, here's the thing. They have no clue how they got into my truck because my truck is not keyless ignition. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. So I have no clue how they did it, but they got into my truck. You sure you didn't just forget to lock it? Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay yeah. good. <laughs> All right. Um, but they got into it. Uh, they smelled terrible. My truck smelled terrible. They didn't, st- the, my son's diaper bag was in there and they stole his diaper bag and then they left it in the street like a couple blocks over because they realized it was a diaper bag, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so jokes on them, but they did get away with my Garmin. Just kind of bummed on that. I, that's the only thing I keep in my truck. 510, 520? 520. Okay. I don't like the 510 because it's a touch screen and a touch screen is stupid when you're sweating on it, have gloves, and then you're trying to read that screen in the sun. Of course. It's terrible. Yeah. Um, so the 520 was, I liked that one. It was compact. It did what I needed. Uh, the only gripe that I have was battery life and the random quitting that it would do unless you deleted every single ride off of it after you completed. Sounds like a millennial. Yeah. <laughs> Ouch. Random quitting. Yeah. Yeah. Random. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Yeah. I thought you were talking about me. No. But anyways, I'm going to try a new one. So this is my, this isn't really a pick as in something that I've used yet. I'm going to try the Wahoo element. Uh, I have good friends at Wahoo and know them pretty well. It's a huge freaking bike computer. It's a little big for my taste. Okay. Uh, More like a 1000. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a little fat too, but it's got a really high contrast, simple black and white screen. I like that. Okay. Uh, it's also got, um, buttons, not touchscreen like that. Good. Uh, it does smartphone notifications, which I'd rather not see most of the time, unless it's from my wife. I want those ones. Okay. Um, but that's, that's good to have just the same. So I'm going to try that. We're going to see how it goes. And, uh, I'm not anticipating like loving it. So it'll be interesting to see if it wins me over. Okay. But, and and that's the thing I think we need to understand or people need to understand is our picks aren't necessarily, Hey, this is what we love because we use it. It's what we're excited about. Yeah. So, so I am excited to try it out. Good. Because I've been only used Garmin head units. Yeah. I've got so. my Phoenix 3 Sapphire. I love that watch. I don't really anticipate ever going off of it. Yeah. I don't need to look at my stuff while I'm riding. You're like a cyclocross racer using watches instead of head units. Exactly. That's their deal because they got to switch bikes. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. Makes sense. When they break their tubular. Yeah. That's <laughs> weird people. Yeah. Anyways, uh, let's go into yours. So this has nothing to do with bikes. You can kind of tie it into it. You can tie it in in the sense that everybody should have a work area. Mm -hmm. And most of our work areas are a garage. And keep in mind, if you're actually taking care of your bike, you're probably using degreaser. Of course. And And you've probably got dot fluid or mineral oil or something of that capacity. Totally. So... Uh, I just, it, it, everybody who knows me and uh, follows me on Instagram and knows me on Facebook already knows that uh, I just got done with a three day project of using, um, code its new UFLEC AF system and which is a garage floor coating. And yeah, so it's a, it's an epoxy based chemical resistant acid resistant, uh, way to make your garage look like a showroom. Yeah. It looks good. 
It looks really good. Uh, the finished product, um, we're still having the the UV stable glaze on the top coat uh, dry and cure, but it's phenomenal stuff. Um, more, I think more bike shops should do this. I agree. I think that this, uh, obviously most bike shops, the workspace is either going to be some like stained concrete or, you know, some sort of rubberized floor. But I think this is a great product to put down in like a work area or even just in, you know, general bike, like the sales area. Yeah. There's a bike shop in Salt Lake called Contender Bicycles. Okay. And it's like a museum. Okay. It is gorgeous. It is awesome. And their mechanics area looks clean and inviting and nice. And it makes you think, oh, wow, they must really be like good mechanics, even if they're not good mechanics. Yeah. Because it just looks so clean versus most bike shops. And we'll, we'll get into the bike shop thing here in just a bit. One of my pet peeves. But most bike shops, you go into them and it's like it's like a cave and with some zit-faced kid in the back eating pizza and hitting your bike with a hammer trying to fix it. <laughs> like that's, yes. it just drives me nuts, right? And if there's any spot to have it just be immaculate, that's it. Yeah. Because you're, it's like where you, would you take your dog to a vet or take your you know, take yourself or your a family member to a doctor when it looks like crap where they're going to go. No, like, or would you like to visit a restaurant with a filthy kitchen yeah, and say, I want to eat there? Exactly. No, no. Like that should be on display. Yeah. Your mechanic area should be meticulous because that shows how you're going to treat their bike and how exactly. you're going to maintain their bike. Yeah. So, uh, this whole, the u at flooring system, great. If you have three days to spend and, you know, you can be without your garage for five days, essentially, it's great stuff. Um, I've done five or six of them now and I've used other brands of, of the flooring, but this stuff's just, it's the best. And their customer service is phenomenal. You know, yeah. you call them and they walk you through everything. You square footage, they tell you what you need. You know, they tell you how dense you want to put down the little fleck things, uh, which I'll get into the one hitch on those that I don't like about the flex in a second. But, you know, they walk you through everything. They email you a quote. You click a link if you like it, and you just pay for it. And then it ships in a day. They're out of Miss uh, Michigan. They're out of Michigan. Huh. So it's pretty much three or four days anywhere in the country. Yeah. And it's just great stuff. It just works well. And it's the only one that I found that the top clear coat is UV stable, so it won't yellow and haze and crack over time. And I've never seen, uh, even people who have studded tires, yeah, I've never seen this stuff get marred up and scratched. And it's impressive. You know, it's it's really good stuff. So it'd be good enough for a bike mechanic. Uh, for a bike mechanic, for a bike cave, I think it's perfect. It's great stuff. The the one caveat, what I yes. said, the thing that I hate about it. Good luck if you ever lose a tiny little nut or bolt <laughs> off your bike the fleck makes it even that much harder to find. That's true. That's, a That's the point. only downside to this stuff, but you can do it just a standard color with a top coat on it and not do the flex. That's true. So. That's a good point. You know, I saw one guy, uh, at one point he had in his garage for automotive purposes, he had extremely strong magnets on the floor that ran the perimeter of like his bay, like small little like rectangles. Okay. It's pretty smart. So he just sweeps whatever into the corner and then, and then he's found it, find the bolt. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, it doesn't work if you have titanium or stainless hardware, truth. but yeah, yeah. Yeah. So let's just finish on something really quick. Bike shops. Yes. Uh, you talked about customer service. Yeah. You worked at a bike shop for a long time. I managed a bike shop. Yeah. I am perenni perennially upset with bike shops. Okay. And here's my reasoning. So they, they constantly ask us to, to spend our dollars locally. Okay. But they aren't giving us a reason to do that. I agree. So basically they're asking for patronage, but 
but like we're talking about like, you know, actually basically it's donations. Yeah. Cause you're not a giving me the value that I want as a customer, as a customer. I agree. It, it's, it's, and I see like shop local support your LBS. And, and then you go to, um, you go to Interbike and they have these conferences every year where they have this guy stand up and he talks about the, the bike industry <clears throat> and it's all bike shop owners, right? Yeah. You know what they want to talk about? The evil internet and how bad the internet is. <clears throat> and, and it's just like so crazy to me that that whole industry is upset at the internet and upset at people at using the internet. And they take it out on their customers instead of giving the customers a reason to stay. It's just, and all a bike shop has to do is make me, make me feel like I am spending my money wisely. Of course. Make me feel like I shouldn't feel bad for coming into the bike shop and interrupting their conversation. Make me feel like it's okay if I just want to hang out here and talk about bikes with somebody else. And it's okay if I want to come in here and talk to you about bike stuff. Of course. But instead, what you get a lot of the time at a bike shop is there's a, a cool club of kids or people that, that get to talk about bikes and they get their own thing. Yeah. But then the majority of people that come in are alienated and treated like a bother. Yeah. You know? And they're just rushed through and rushed out and that's So it. frustrating. So yeah, it, it, and it's funny because I don't, in the bike industry, I don't deal with that ever being that I still have all of my pro deals and my, you know, I still am a part of that shop. Yeah. Uh, so I don't really have to deal with that as a customer. So, uh, and it's funny that you bring this up because it, I just decided after a 24 year hiatus to get back into snow skiing, pizza, you and know, French fries, pizza and French fries. And, yeah. and you're a big backcountry guy. So, you know, I went to a local ski shop here in town and I was just elated at the attention to detail and the, the, the customer service that I was given. And, I felt compelled to really step back and think about that on a bike level. And you're right. No local bike shops seem to be at a point where they just want to complain and, you know, demonize the internet for the cheap prices and then get mad at the customer for taking advantage of it. And I think that really uh, brings out the long-term goals you and I have been discussing about certain things that we'll get to eventually in this podcast. But, um, I think really giving that customer a reason, you know, a customer will spend more money on a product totally at a local bike shop if you give them a reason to. Yeah. And I think the uh, the expertise and the attention and the really just the one-on-one undivided, you know, customer expert experience, you know, why should I spend my $160 on two tubeless tires with you instead of spending 110 on Amazon and having it in two days yeah. and then just paying you eight bucks to install it. Exactly. Well, here's why, because I'm going to tell you as an expert, I'm going to give you, uh, why a tire is going to work better for you. Yeah. I'm you'll gonna, tell me exactly which one I should use, why yeah, I should based use it, on when me. I should use it, how I should use it. And you'll do so in a way that makes me feel more confident about riding. Absolutely. And about, you know, working on a bike and understanding how it's working underneath me. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, people, spend money based off of relationships. Absolutely. And then when they spend, or, and if they spend that money is purely contingent upon timing. Yeah. Like you need a relationship in order for that money to be spent. And we all have a relationship with the internet. We watch cat videos. It's great. There's nothing wrong with the internet, right? Like for us personally, our relationship with the internet is great. Yeah. And then timing, the internet is always with us. It's in our pockets. It's in our phones. Absolutely. Right. So it's always there. So if a bike shop can make, first of all, take the time to build a relationship with me. Yeah. A genuine one. Yeah. Number two, if that bike shop 
can can make if that bike shop can be can become a place where I actually want to be, yeah, and I enjoy my time there. Chances are that timing to make my purchase is going to come up. You are going to spend more time with me, and as a result. I am probably going to come to that purchasing decision when I'm there at the bike shop. Absolutely. And uh, just based off the, off of the relationship I have with you, I'd probably spend my money there instead of on the internet. Yeah. And more often than not, that's how I built a lot of my relationships with people in our community. And that's how I hate to say it, but I, I played a big part in that particular shop having yeah. record years for the last three years that I was there. Yeah. Totally true. And that's why I went to the shop because I was like, this Steven guy knows his stuff I've heard. And then I met Steven and I'm like, Steven's a good dude. And then, you know, that's, that's exactly why. Yeah. And uh, so taking a card from the most pretentious side of road cycling, you could say, um, Rafa on the road side of things, which mountain bikers instantly cringe and they hear that. Right. I just um, think of drunk cyclist posts on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. Certain <laughs> expletives put before yeah. the word Rafa. Yeah. But continue. Which, by the way, all the people at Rafa, Derek Lewis is there, um, and we work with them pretty closely at Trainer Road yeah. on a few different things. Yeah. Freaking awesome. Yeah. No, great people. They've just been and demonized in the mountain bike world for whatever reason. And and I understand it. They're polarizing, right? Yeah, very polarizing. Uh, but here's what they do right. Number one, they tell stories really well. And they make you, if you're into that sort of thing, you are really into Rafa. They're very good at that. And they make good products. That's great. But the one of their my favorite products of theirs are actually their cycle clubs that they have. Rafa cycle clubs. They Pop have up them, clubs. Yep. They yeah. have them around. And some of them are permanent. They have one in New York. We've been to the one in the meatpacking district there in New York. Now it's in Soho. Uh, the one in San Francisco. They have them all around the world. You go in there. And it's, you would expect Rafa is kind of known as like a pretentious brand. It's not. You walk into those stores and it's a bunch of clothing is on there. They have a cafe with a barista. He'll make you coffee. Sometimes they'll even just give it to you on the house. And they have a TV over there and bike racing is on 100% of the time. And chances are there are three or four other guys that would just want to chat bike racing with you too. Yeah. The employees want to do the same. Yep. And that's actually what they're directed to do. They're not there to like push clothing on you. And it's really expensive items, but people still buy it. Yeah. They're there to just be a cyclist just like you. Yeah. And to enjoy your company and make your time there pleasant. Yeah. And give you a place to come. And every group ride starts and leaves from a Rafa Cycle Club in whatever city they're in. Yeah. And it's really effective. So I think that bike shops should look at that model. Everyone always says, yeah, I mean, if you want to make a bike shop successful, it needs to be a cafe too. Well, a cafe or not, if it has an uncomfortable vibe, then it's not going to be good. Exactly. And that's the one thing that they do really well. It's comfortable. It's relaxed. You go in there and it's, uh, it's, it's inviting. It's really, it's beautiful inside. They do a good job of keeping it clean and it looks so good. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's a comfortable place. So bike shops, please. Just look at how to build relationships with people and trust and, and do things like that rather than demonize me for using the internet. Yeah. I want to spend money with you. Yeah. But I can't because we don't have a relationship. Exactly. This could be us, but it's not. Because, because cat videos on the internet have that relationship right <laughs> exactly. now. Exactly. And with cat videos, we'll close. It was a good one. It's a good one. Hopefully. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Uh, we'll be back with episode three in a week. Uh, so please submit your questions. You can go to mtbpodcast.com can submit them there. Uh, you can find us at MTB podcast at various different social channels or the MTB podcast on Twitter. Uh, send us questions, comments, whatever else you want. Uh, if you want to hear about a specific topic or anything else, let us know. 
and we'll chat about it or hear from a specific person. We'll talk to them then. Uh, yeah, that's it. We'll talk to you next week. Have a nice day. Yeah, or night or morning or whatever. Whatever. <laughs> See y'all. Hey guys, Jonathan here. Just wanted to thank you again for listening and let you know that if you like the song that you're hearing now and the one that you heard in the intro, it comes from Wave Riders Entertainment, my good friend Tommy Walter. Check it out if you're looking for more beats like this or some awesome tracks to listen to. We'll talk to you next week.